this morning. We praise your holy name. We thank you that you have, Lord, brought us together. We thank you that we can be here together worshiping you. Father, I pray that this preaching of your word would be just a continuation of your worship as we come before your throne. We thank you again this morning. We thank you for every, each and every person here. Father, I pray that you would use your word for your purposes and that the messenger would decrease as you increase. Pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, welcome again to Grace Bible Church. As we continue this morning, we're going to continue with our study in Ephesians. Specifically, we are in Ephesians chapter 3. I think Jonathan mentioned earlier the men's study and, and the women's study. I certainly commend those to you. Uh, I think Jonathan mentioned as well that uh, the just how rich the time has been for the men uh, to be together. We were together this morning. We we discussed uh, the Hebrews 10 passage from last week for the most part. Uh, just a wonderful, wonderful study, wonderful uh, discussion uh, together as we as we loved one another. Let me read uh, this morning. Let me read from uh, Ephesians chapter three. As I do so. Let me remind you that as a church, that we are committed to expository preaching. We're committed to uh, the verse-by-verse, verse-to-verse expository preaching. We started in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1, and we have made our way to Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 6. Today, I will will walk through these verses, verse-by-verse, and we will see what the Lord has for us here. We feel that, that it's the uh, superior way to uh, approach the Word. That's not to say that you can't approach it topically and, and, and that you can't gain um, edification or be edified that way, but we feel that God intended uh, these books to be preached, to be taught in their entirety, uh, verse by verse, uh, so that we can understand the theme so that we can see the themes, the teaching themes, and understand what he intended us to learn in each of these books. So let me read in context Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 13. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, 
This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. In his book called The Power of Christian Contentment, Andrew Davis gives an illustration which describes the rare nature of contentment in a discontented world. He states this, The stone had been formed, this is an illustration by the way, the stone had been formed in the depths of the earth centuries before it was found, transformed from worthless carbon by unimaginable temperatures and pressures. It had been driven to the surface of the earth by tectonic forces and had made its way down various tributary streams until it came to rest at the edge of this river in Brazil. No one could know how long it had been there, unrecognizable, covered with mud and sand. It looked like any ordinary stone, but it was precious beyond words. In 1990, a Brazilian farmer needed some water for his fields, and he stooped down to get it. The stone somehow caught his eye, and he scooped it up, dripping and dirty. There's no way the farmer could have known that he had just discovered the largest red diamond in history, 13.9 carats in its rough form. All diamonds are rare, but red diamonds are the rarest of them all. That red diamond would eventually be cut into a triangular shape weighing 5.11 carats. It is now known as the Musayef red diamond, named after the collector who purchased it in 2001. Its sale price was undisclosed, but estimates put its value as high as $8 million. Now, any of us can relate to a poor farmer finding a treasure hidden for centuries in plain sight. On that riverbank, the outward appearance of that diamond made it look like any other ordinary stone or pebble which a child may pick up and throw into the water. The stone's real value was obscured by its misleading exterior. As a child, as a kid, I grew up close, very close to the only public diamond mine in the world. It was in Murfreesboro, Arkansas. It is. It was actually a state park, and I remember going there as a as a as a school child. I go there on on trips as a as a student. The largest diamond ever discovered in the United States, called the Uncle Sam, was found there in 1924. Now, during our visits, I recall park rangers telling us that finding diamonds was very difficult because they were so hard to distinguish from the rest of the stones and from the little balls of dirt and clay. Now. Andrew Davis plays off an old book title by Jeremiah Burroughs called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And he uses this particular illustration to describe the valuable nature of Christian contentment. But I think that this story can be used to illustrate the mystery 
which was revealed to the Apostle Paul beginning on the road to Damascus. It was there in the, the New Testament or the Old Testament all along. It had hinted of the glorious truths which, had been, which were revealed to Paul, and, but, it, but it hadn't been completely revealed in the Old Testament. Now, as he penned this letter, he found himself, Paul, that is, found himself imprisoned for the preaching of the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles. Specifically, Paul had taught that in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, God had chosen to adopt his sons through Jesus, adopt us as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. That's Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. God did this without taking counsel from anyone other than himself within the Trinity. Paul revealed to the Ephesians that salvation is truly a Trinitarian act. We are chosen and adopted by the Father. We are redeemed and forgiven our trespasses by the Son through the shedding of His blood. That's Ephesians 1.7. And as I said, the Spirit is also intimately involved in our, in our salvation. After hearing the gospel, the message of the truth, the gospel, we are sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 1.12 and 13. This is done as a pledge, the sealing is done as a pledge of our future and full redemption in Christ. So we have been chosen by the Father, we have been redeemed by the Son, and we have been sealed by the Spirit. In Christ we have been made new creatures, a, a new creation. In Christ we are now a new humanity, a new humanity in Christ Jesus. And we have be, are being built up into one body in the Holy Spirit. Now, we should briefly note the Spirit's work in creation, which I believe connects to the Spirit's work in the heart of believers. Remember in Genesis 1, it says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. In the beginning, the Holy Spirit was intimately involved in the creation of the world and of man. And He's intimately involved in the creation of this new humanity, this new man. Just like the breath of life was breathed into the man in Genesis 2, the Spirit of God now dwells in this new man. Now, we spent the last couple of sermons in Ephesians exploring the life of Paul to better understand him. You see, Paul was a man who had nothing worldly to gain, yet was willing to give his life to follow a man who had been crucified by the Romans. In Paul's own, own words, he says this, If anyone could put confidence in the flesh, he could do far more, do so far more. He was even a persecutor of the church. He had desired to stamp out and destroy the church. Yet Christ, on the road to Damascus, radically saved him and put him into service to build his church. So the man who desired to destroy the church is put into service by Christ to build his church. You could say that Paul personified the following parables of Jesus. In Matthew 13, 44, it says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Paul was willing to give up everything that he had been given in this life in order to buy that field. He personified this parable. Jesus says again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all he had and he bought it. 
You see, Paul had glimpsed the infinite value of Christ and was willing to suffer greatly for the prize of eternity with Him. He saw the beauty of Christ. You see, Christians today tend to treat the world as if it has infinite value. We are like that poor farmer who found the the diamond without having any idea of its actual worth. We value the things of this world because we can experience them with our senses. We can sense the value of the world, but we can't see Christ because he's obscured by the world, right? That's not how Paul saw his life. That's not how he wanted the Ephesian church to see their lives. He wanted them to see the infinite value of Christ. He wanted them to see the beauty of Christ and be willing to give up everything for for Him. Again, in Paul's words, Philippians 3, 7, but whatever things were gained to me, speaking of his life, his life in the flesh, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for Christ, for the sake of Christ, that is. Then he goes on in 3, 8, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of what? All things. What's he saying? All things. What's the all things he's talking about? He suffered the loss of all things in this world. But he knew that the the infinite value, the surpassing value of knowing Christ was much greater than anything he's lost. He says this, and count them but rubbish. Rubbish. So that I may gain Christ. Where do you stand, beloved? Are you chasing after the wealth of this world? Are you treating Christ as if He were a mud-encrusted, uncut diamond? Or do you see the world with all its promises as a dung heap so that you may gain Christ? Ultimately, Ultimately, the answer to that question will answer the direction of your life. Now, we've been answering the following question. Of all people in this world to believe and follow, why would we believe the words of Paul the Apostle? Now, you might object and say, I'm not following Paul. I'm following Christ. And I agree that there's a sense that you're right to say that, but here's the rub. Would we understand, or would our understanding of Jesus be the same without the writings and, and the teachings of the Apostle Paul? I don't think so. See, Paul understood that he was the key that unlocked the door to understanding the Messiah and understanding the church, this new humanity. Paul understood the importance of handing down this information to a, a new generation to carry on the work after he was gone. And therein, beloved, lies the the purpose of this letter. And we clearly see this purpose in Ephesians 3. We most most clearly see the purpose in Ephesians 3.13. We just read it earlier, but it says, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Paul, What Paul wanted them to understand is, What Paul wanted them to understand is is that he was imprisoned. It looked like for all the world, this experiment of the church was going to fail because the, the apostles were being persecuted. He was being persecuted. 
He was in prison for preaching the gospel. And yet he is encouraging them and telling them that his imprisonment is for their glory. It's not over yet. It's not over. Press on. He wanted them to know that he could be trusted and that all Christians must press forward for the sake of the mystery of Christ, of which he had made, been made a steward. And that brings us to our first point that we started a couple of weeks ago, that, Paul, or that God gave Paul this stewardship for our interests. Now again, this is a bit of a review, but look at verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. I want to give just a little bit more depth as I, as I review here, but it should be pointed out again that Paul was in prison for the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. More specifically, he was preaching that the Gentiles could be saved apart from the works of law specifically the, the, the ceremonial law. They could be saved by grace through faith in Christ's finished work on the cross. That's what he taught in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Now, Jesus, then, has abolished in his flesh the enmity between the Jew and the Gentile, which he describes as a law of commandments. And in doing so, Jesus established peace and reconciled Jew and Gentile into one body, the church. He accomplished this by his blood at the cross. Here's the rub. The Jews hated it. I mean, you think about it. We did all this, right? We did all this, all these things. This is how we came to know God. And now you're saying all they have to do is just believe in what Christ has done? I, I, I don't get it. I don't understand, right? That's what, that's what the Jews are saying. Even, even Jewish Christians had a hard time understanding what Christ had accomplished for both Jews and Gentiles. At times, if you read the pages of the New Testament, the Apostle Peter struggled with it. He didn't completely get it. He didn't get and completely understand it at, at times. Some would say that James himself, we, and the, this morning we were in the men's study, we talked about James a lot, but some would say that James was at odds with it, though this is not true. You know, the faith without works is a, is a dead faith. And maybe James is speaking that there, ne there needs to be works. And that's not what he's saying at all. It's not what he's saying at all. In any case, in any case, all of this was revealed directly to Paul by Christ. And according to verse 3, the revelation was known, made known to Paul and to him alone. Let that hang there. That by He says this, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before and breathed. In other words, according to Paul, all of this was riding on him and his ministry. He was the bridge from the Jews to take the, the gospel to the nations. Say it that way. I didn't say that, really, Paul did, right? Paul is saying that it's his, he has been given the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to him for you. For who, who is you? That'd be the Gentiles, right? And in doing so, he did it, and he's, doing, he's preaching the gospel to glorify Christ, and he did so for our interests, for our gain, if you will. Let's briefly look at the second point. God gave Paul this stewardship 
the stewardship for our insight. For our insight. Look at the text. He says that by revelation there was made known to me a mystery, the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, when you read, you can understand my insight. Again, this is a review from last time. Paul says that by revelation. This was something that was previously not known or revealed, but it was revealed to Paul. It's interesting to note that Jesus didn't fully reveal these things even to his apostles while he was here on earth in the flesh. It was revealed to Paul beginning when, he, when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He says, There was made to, known to me the mystery. Now, I need to point out here that there are two Greek words that can be translated made known. See, Paul is using one here that conveys experiential knowledge. In other words, Paul wants us to know that he has known this by experience. It should be noted that Jesus, Jesus also revealed to Paul how much he would suffer for this truth, how much he would suffer for this mystery. As such, Paul was imprisoned by the Romans for preaching this message for the sake of the Gentiles. Now, according to Paul, if you read Ephesians chapter or 3, verse 1, according to Paul, it was Christ who had imprisoned him. Now, have you ever asked yourself why Paul had to suffer so much? Well, let me say this. Take away the suffering. Would you believe him? Would you believe Paul, if he didn't suffer? You see, his suffering for the sake of the gospel indicates the truthfulness of the message. You see, Paul personified, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, Paul personified Christ's call to take up the cross and follow Him. You see, the mystery had been made known to Paul. He had experienced it on the, on the road to Damascus. He had suffered for the sake of this mystery from that point forward. Now you might ask, what is the mystery? I believe that he's referring to all that he's taught from chapters 1 and 2. I think he makes this clear in his next statement. Look, look at your text. He says, as I wrote before in brief. Now he could be, he could be referring to something else that he has written to them but i think he's simply saying that he he had written the first two chapters to sum up this mystery revealed to him which had not been seen before before him look at verse four in the nas it says by referring to this when you read you can understand my insight into the mystery of christ the esv translates this verse when you read this you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. The New King James Version, I think, captures this translation well. He says this, By which, when you read, you may understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, is he wants them to read and study what he has written in brief in this, these first two chapters. And in doing so, you will come to understand the insight into the mystery of Christ which Paul had been given. As such, as such, Paul gave us a rich treasure of understanding, of understanding the person and the work of Christ and what He has accomplished on the cross. And we, as a church, would do well to study this treasure for the rest of our lives. Let me continue the illustration. Paul is like the jeweler 
who took that mud-encrusted diamond and he cleaned it and he expertly cut it to reveal its intrinsic beauty. You see, in the first two chapters, he carefully cut the diamond of the gospel and has brilliantly shown every facet of it. He did so with a brevity of words which betray the true depth of theology that they contain. You know, after almost every sermon, Vey here says, there's so much more that you could have said. There's so much more you could have said. He's right. We haven't even scratched the surface of all that Paul conveys. You know, we've been studying the treasure of these we studied the treasure of these first two chapters for over a year as a church. This is actually my 25th sermon in Ephesians. And some of you may have wondered why I continually tread the same ground. But I want to show you every facet of this diamond that I can see. And I want to try to communicate it to you. Because I want you to see the beauty of the gospel. I want, to, I want you to see every facet of the gospel. And by the time we get to chapter 4, I want you to say, I get it. I get it. <clears throat> I see what Paul is saying. Now how must I live considering these great truths? By the way, that's how Paul sets up the letter. The first two chapters, he gives us this great mystery. Chapter 3 he shows us his heart for this mystery and, he, and his encouragement to press forward despite the great difficulties. In chapters 4 through 6, answer the question, how shall we live considering these great truths? How shall we live? What should our walk look like considering who, what Christ has done? Let's look at the third reason Paul gave, or God gave Paul the stewardship. He gave it to us for our, or gave it to Paul for our instruction. Look at your text, verse 5. It says this, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. We've already hit this briefly, but you see, what Paul is saying is this mystery was not made known to the sons of Adam, sons of man, in other generations. Now, this may, make, this may raise a few eyebrows. Throughout the Old Testament from the very beginning, there was a messianic expectation. God had promised to send a redeemer, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That's Genesis 3.15. This anointed one would redeem mankind and return us to our former glory in the garden. They, they, there was an expectation of this. I think we can see that Adam and Eve even had this expectation from the time that she gave birth to Cain. They were expecting God to send the seed of the woman, the Redeemer, to crush the head of the serpent and return them to the garden, to return them to Eden. Now, over the millennia, though, this idea of a Redeemer was reduced to a political Messiah who would simply liberate his people from Gentile oppression. Now, start understanding that. If you think about the Jew and the Gentile, it's the, the Jew, Jewish thought was is that that this Messiah was going to come and liberate them from Gentile oppression. It was never going to be that the Gentile would join them in salvation unless the Gentile became a Jew. Let me give you a little background. In 586 B.C., Jerusalem fell to Babylon, 
and God's people, the Jews, were sent by God, make sure you understand that, sent by God to into exile. At that point, it seemed that all was lost. The temple was destroyed. Satan had won the battle, and, and it looked like, for all intents and purposes, it looked like he, was, he had won the war. This was especially true if you look at things from a worldly perspective. But out of the ruins of the temple and, and Jerusalem, around 458 B.C., in Babylon, God raised up a man named Ezra. And this man, Ezra, had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to teach it. And this began a partial, make sure we understand, a partial restoration of the Jews to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. But it was never or it was not to be the same as before. You see, they were able to rebuild the city walls and the temple, but the Jews remained under Gentile rule. In other words, you could say very clearly that the Jews were still in exile and are to this day still in exile. By the time of Christ and Paul, they were under the very uneasy rule of the Romans. And under Roman rule, there was always a concern of uprising among, uprisings among the Jews as they tried to shake off their Gentile oppressors. They didn't want to be in this situation, although they found comfort in it in some ways. The leadership did. Ultimately, this unrest, though, led to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. under the Roman Emperor Nero. Now, at that point, the Jews were defeated and now scattered among the nations. So, again, the Jewish people are in exile. Now, during all this, the Jews were looking for God to send a Messiah to save them and to restore them to their former glory as God's people. Now, what we have to understand is the Apostle Paul was well-versed in this understanding of the Messiah. Prior to his conversion, he was a man of his times. He completely understood his people. He completely understood that they were looking for God to send the anointed one to defeat the Romans, to defeat the Gentile oppression, and save them. They were looking specifically for a political Messiah. They wanted a Messiah to come to liberate them and restore them. Now, this helps us understand that Jesus didn't fit this description at any level. He didn't fit the people's description of the Messiah. The Messiah was sent to destroy the Gentiles that were oppressing him, the Romans. But in the eyes of the Jews, Jesus was destroyed by the Romans. It's interesting to note that Jesus' crucifixion was carried out by the Romans, but it was the Jewish leadership who gave him over, having accused him of blasphemy. Now, after Jesus was resurrected and ascended, he sent his Holy Spirit, who began to reveal more detail to his people regarding his full identity. And according to the text, he revealed these things to his apostles and prophets. Look at your text. Look at your text. Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Earlier in Ephesians 2.20, Paul had said that the household of God, the church, has been built on the foundation of of the apostles and prophets. Now, let's briefly look at the holy apostles and who they are. First, I should note that Paul clearly includes himself in this group. Regarding the apostles, there were officially 13 of them, including Matthias. 
the original 12 with Judas removed, that makes 11, and Matthias was added in Acts 1. And the 13th was the Apostle Paul. These were official apostles. You might say capital A apostles. Jesus was also called the apostle and high priest of our confession by the writer of Hebrews. But when we refer to the holy apostles, they were an official group of 13 people. They had received revelation from God and were given the responsibility of writing and affirming the New Testament. And when the church was formed in Acts 1 and 2, the members of the body devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's Acts 2.42. The authenticity of the apostles was affirmed through the many signs and wonders they were performing among the people. That's Acts 2.43. So, the apostles then were those who gave us the New Testament. They also gave us our doctrine. And to be an official apostle, to be one of that group, you had to be personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus. Now Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, he says this, I, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Christ? That was the requirement. To be a part of this group, you had to be officially commissioned by Christ, but you had to have, been, to have seen the resurrected Christ. You had to be personally chosen and commissioned by Him. Now, what we need to understand is, is as the church grew and spread out, the apostles faded away. The office of, of apostle went away. According to Ephesians 2.20, though, or then that they were the foundation of the church. Again, they gave us the New Testament, and they taught, us, taught the doctrine of the church. Then they began to fade away. Paul, I would, I would submit to you, I would argue that Paul already sensed this changing of the guard as he was writing this letter. He wanted the church to continue pressing forward with the gospel after he was gone. He, he knew that they, that, that they were going to give way to a new leadership in the church, specifically the elders. Later on, even the apostles began to refer to themselves as elders. They, as they began to phase out, as, as the office of apostles began to, or the apostle began to fade out, they began to even call themselves elders so the people would understand the transition. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter 5.1 to, to get an idea of what I'm talking about. He says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So he's saying, look, I saw the sufferings of Christ, but what's he calling himself? He's calling himself an elder. Peter was an apostle, right? John also referred to himself as an elder in 2nd and 3rd John. If you go back and read that, he says uh, he calls himself an elder <coughs> in the salutation. Clearly, the apostles gave way to a new leadership the elders who were who to be the new leadership in the church. That's why Paul then took such pains to describe the character of the elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. They were the ones to lead the church forward from the time of the apostles. Now you might say, well, weren't there more than 13? There are other people who are called apostles in, in the New Testament. You're right, Barnabas and others are called 
apostles, but I would refer to them as small a apostles. They were unofficial messengers of the churches. Now, that's, I want to be I want to be careful just to make that distinction of the churches. I believe that the New, Te- New Testament makes this distinction in 2 Corinthians 8.23 and in Jude 17. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8.23. He says this, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit, and as for our brothers, they are messengers or apostles of the churches, the glory of Christ. Listen to Jude 17. This is speaking of the big A apostles. But you must remember, beloved, the prediction of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you hear the distinction? So there seems to be a distinction between the apostles of the churches and the holy apostles, which Paul refers to in Ephesians 3 and also in Ephesians 2.20. And you can see this distinction in how the apostles refer to themselves when they write in the New Testament. So very early on, then, the church understood this this distinction. I wanted to give you this, this quote by Clement of Rome. It says this, the apostles, this is in AD 96, by the way, it says this, the apostles have preached the gospel to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has done so from God. Christ, therefore, was sent by God and the apostles by Christ, end quote. Irenaeus says this, the church has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith, end quote. Tertullian, and that was, that was uh, Irenaeus in, in AD 183 or around that time. Tertullian says in around AD 210, he says this, Since the Lord Jesus sent the apostles to preach, our rule is that no others ought to be received as preachers than those whom Christ appointed. For no one knows the Father except the Son, and him to whom the Son wishes to reveal him. Nor does the Son seem to have revealed him to any other than the apostles whom he sent forth to preach, end quote. Listen to this. This is Tertullian again. No doubt, after the time of the apostles, the truth respecting the belief of God suffered corruption. But it is equally certain that during the life of the apostles, their teaching on this great article did not suffer at all. So that no other teaching will have the right of being received as apostolic than that which is at the present day proclaimed in the churches of apostolic foundation. That's in around, again, AD 210. Now, Paul also speaks of the prophets. These, these are the folks which God used to reveal His truth to the local churches before the canon of Scripture were, was finalized. I should note, I should note, and it's already been implicit in what I've said, that the church did not bestow apostolic and prophetic authority. It was the Holy Spirit who chose certain people to receive and deliver the truth of God. The church, the church could never authorize an apostle. That is a big A apostle or a prophet. They could merely recognize them. The church during the New Testament era did not ordain anyone to the prophetic or apostolic ministry. This was the job of God alone, 
specifically the Holy Spirit. Look at your text. Look at your text. It says that it, this was revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Peter says but in 1 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by who? By the Holy Spirit spoke from God. They were, their authority came from God, from Christ. And it was through the Spirit. If anyone says they're speaking from God, then what they say, what they say better match the words of the holy apostles and prophets. If not, they are false prophets and false teachers who are introducing destructive heresies into the church. And according to Jude, they deny, I think this is Jude, they deny the master who bought them. It's either Jude or Peter. Let me just finish by saying that when the foundation was complete, the foundation of the church, the apostles and the prophets faded away. They weren't needed anymore because the foundation was finished. You don't need to build the foundation again, right? You don't, you don't go back and rebuild the foundation. You put the foundation in the ground and you build the home or build the house or the building on it. The, the prophets and the apostles, the apostles and the prophets built that foundation. It is complete. The need for that, those offices passed away, faded away, and gave way to the elders. Listen to the, this again, Ignatius, again in the early church. The people shall be called by a new name, which the Lord shall name them, and shall be a holy people. This was first fulfilled in Syria, for the disciples were called Christians at Antioch. Now listen, listen to this. This is, this is Ignatius. When Paul and Peter were laying the foundations of the church. End quote. You see, the early church understood this. The early church understood that it was the apostles and the prophets who laid the foundation. It was the apostles and the prophets that had, had this mystery revealed to them, starting with Paul. It was revealed to them in spirit. Which brings us to the fourth reason why God gave Paul this stewardship. It's for our increase. Look at verse 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here Paul re removes all ambiguity. All ambiguity as to the mystery that has been revealed to him. In the Old Testament, God had given little hints about this mystery. For example, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, he had promised Abraham that in his seed all nations would be blessed. That would be the nations would be the Gentiles. He extended the same promise to Isaac in Genesis 26 and, in, and to Jacob in Genesis 28. In Psalm 72, the psalmist speaks of the Gentiles, uh, Gentiles blessing the God of Israel. In Isaiah 49, Isaiah prophesies that Israel would be the light to the nations. In Hosea 1.10, God says that those who are not my people, the Gentiles, shall be called the sons of the living God. In Amos 9:12 it says that all that all the nations that there all the nations will be called by the name of Yahweh. In Joel 2:28 God says that he would pour out 
His Spirit on all flesh, that is all mankind. But here's here's the rub again. The Jews didn't completely understand what this meant. The only way they, they understood for, the, for Gentiles to have salvation was for them to convert to Judaism. They never foresaw a new humanity in Christ. You see, that's the, there's a third group here, right? There's the, there's the Jew, there's the Gentile, and now there's this new humanity, the church. They never foresaw that. Galatians 3.8 sheds some light on this. It says this. Galatians 3.8 The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All nations will be blessed in you. What Paul is saying is, is that the New Testament or the Old Testament taught this. The Old Testament taught that the Jews would or the Gentiles would be blessed, that all nations would be blessed. In other words, Scripture had taught that Jew and Gentile would be one that there would be, the, the, the Gentiles would be blessed. But it was not clear in Scripture. It was not clear, completely clear, that there would be this new humanity, the church. The Old Testament saints didn't grasp this. It was a mystery yet to be revealed to them. You see, the Old Testament didn't speak of the church. so They had no idea that even when Jesus promised to build His church in Matthew 16, they had no idea what that meant. Had no idea the implications of what He was saying. And we're still studying the implications even to this day, right? We're still trying to understand it completely even to this day. As I said, earlier the early church saints some of the early church saints didn't even completely grasp what god was doing they were still trying to fuse the old system with the new system even peter and james as i said earlier seemed to struggle with this but this is the the good news of the gospel all mankind can be saved all mankind can be brought near both Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter your background. Your status in this life makes no difference. We are all one in Christ, if you are in Christ. In Christ, we are a new creation. In Christ, we are a new humanity. And according to Paul, the old has passed away and the new has come. According to Paul, the nations are fellow heirs with Israel. The nations are fellow members of the body of Christ. The nations will partake in the same promises as Israel. This must refer to the covenants. Prior to the cross, prior to the cross, the Gentiles would have had to become Jews to participate in these promises. They now are fellow participants, including the Messiah, salvation, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Of 
according to Galatians 3, Paul says that the Gentile believer has obtained the promise of the Spirit equally for these, for there is now no distinction between Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. As such, both believing Jews and Gentiles are under the blessings of the new covenant. And all this happens in Christ through the gospel. Now, let me say, let me make some careful distinctions here. Paul has been very clear that the church is not the new Israel. The church is made up of people who are a new creation, a new humanity. The church is then a distinct body of believers made up of believing Jews and Gentiles. They have been brought together in Christ by the Spirit. And as such, the promises that Paul talks about are the ones that have been restated in the New Testament. Harold Honer says this about these promises. He says this, Only those promises restated in the New Testament apply to the church. And those that are not mentioned apply to the nation of Israel and are yet to be fulfilled. And I would add to Israel. As such, he goes on to say, there is no indication in the New Testament that promises such as the land promises made to Israel are for the church's possession. End quote. In other words, there are very specific promises which God made to Israel, including the promise to dwell in the land which have not which has not been fully fulfilled we believe according to scripture that these will be fulfilled to israel in the future again the church is this new humanity made up of jew and gentile now i've said on several occasions that we are the body of christ we are the manifestation of Christ in this world. I, I began this sermon by relating a story about a farmer finding a diamond. You may recall that it is, it is as I related to you, it's incredibly difficult to find diamonds in the rough because they look like everything else around them. I just want to have you imagine for a moment going to a jewelry store to shop for diamonds in their original, in original state. You see... If we did that, we wouldn't know what we were getting, right? We wouldn't understand. We, the, the beauty of the diamond would be hidden by an ugly exterior. Well, brothers and sisters, Christ is more beautiful than any diamond. He is more precious than gold. Beloved, the church is not to be a diamond in the rough. Sometimes we are, right? But we're not to be. That's not what we're called to be. We're called to shine forth the glory of Christ in a lost and dying world. You see, Paul, the apostle, understood this. He was willing to suffer and die for it. He was willing to suffer and die for what Christ had taught him. Brethren, we are the church, the body of Christ. The church is called to be a light in this dark and dying world. We do this by loving Christ and by loving one another. We do these things by serving God and serving one another in the love of Christ. We do these things because of the work of the Spirit. 
He has made us one in Christ. Nonetheless, here's what's interesting. The, the Spirit has made us one in Christ, but nonetheless, God calls us to unity in Christ. In John 13, Christ Himself said this, For our love for one another shows the world that we are His, his disciples. In John 15, 12, He says this, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. He says the same thing in 15, 7, John 15, 17. And in John 17, 21, he says this in the high priestly prayer, what we refer to the, as the high priestly prayer, he says this, that they, the church, the disciples, may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. So the question is, why does he want us to be one? Because he wants us to manif manifest his body, manifest him on, on, in this world. So that the world, John 17, 21 goes on to say, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Beloved, the, the following, this quote here has been attributed to a man named St. Francis of Assisi. He says this, Preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. Now, that quote's not accurate. The gospel is words. You can't communicate the message of the gospel any other way. It must be preached with words. But we must adorn the gospel with our lives. We do this by loving God and by loving our neighbor. We do this by truly, we do, when we do this, that is, we truly manifest Christ in this world. That was Paul's heart for the church at Ephesus. His heart was for them to press on, to press forward. His heart was for them to see His change as their glory and to press on and preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to continue to see the church built until He returns. The challenge for us is to pick up this charge to pick up the charge that Paul gave to the Ephesians to preach the gospel to preach the good news of Christ to preach the good news that we who are far off can be brought near I charge you as a church to go and preach this message to live it by loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbors yourself, but to go preach it. Preach it. Preach the gospel. Be confident in its work. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you this day we thank you for giving us this revealing to Paul and the apostles this mystery this mystery that Christ 
mystery that we can be saved by grace through faith. Through the work of Christ on the cross. Oh, we know, according to the Old Testament, that faith has always been, belief has always been the way of salvation. But now we see clearly, we see clearly that you are a, you are a God who is full of grace and loving kindness. We see clearly that we can be made right with a holy God. We see clearly that we can boldly approach the throne of God, your throne, because we've been given the very righteousness of Christ. Oh Lord, I pray. There are many who don't know you. There are many who have not tasted of this grace. That was Paul's encouragement to the church at Ephesus, that they go and they preach the gospel to the lost, to a lost and dying world. He had been given this mystery this mystery revealed. Father, I pray that we would pick up the mantle. That we would take this charge. And we would love one another. I love you and we would love you above all. And that we would love one another and that our unity would manifest Christ into a lost and dying world and that we would go and preach the gospel. This good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that He's accomplished on the cross in redeeming us from our trespasses and sins. You have raised Him up and seated Him in the heavenlies. And in Him, we also have been raised up and seated in the heavenlies. What an amazing truth that a sinful people can be in Christ. Because you have made us, you've made us right with you. And it's all because of you. It's all because of what you have done. In Christ's name, amen.